Yeah. And Troy, in another moment of good copmanship, good cop personship, good cop ship. <laughs> good policing. Good policing. <laughs> Welcome to Midsummer Maniacs. This is episode three, Death of a Hollow Man. Hey, Maniacs. I'm Sarah. And I'm Mark. <laughs> oh, so if we count the pilot as episode one, this is the third episode this of Midsummer, but really is the official first season episode two. Yes, first season episode two. The Razor episode. The Death of a Hollow Man episode. So this was uh, filmed in August and September of 97, which was right after the, the first episode, and then broadcast the 29th of March, 1998, so a week to the day after the first episode. This is, again, Caroline Graham book, but this is the second Barnaby book. Ah, okay. Uh, while last week's Written in Blood was like the third or fourth one. And the title probably comes from the T.S. Eliot poem, Hollow Men, which is not a happy poem. Well, it's T.S. Eliot, so it's not going to be happy anyway. But Tiger, tiger, burning bright. No, that's not T.S. Eliot. It's not? Who's that? That's... Um, Blake. Blake, I'm yes. glad I have a PhD in English. <laughs> <laughs> so Eslin is the hollow man, Yeah. Yes, I yeah. would say that Eslin's the hollow man. Elliot said that that came from a combination of things. Other people says it's from Julius Caesar, but it's not. Elliot said that it was from Kipling and this other guy. So, so this is a pretty low body count episode. There's only two murders. It's two certainly bodies. probably our one of our lowest body count episodes, and the next episode's a low body count too. Yeah. There's kind of the extremes. There's episodes where there's like one or two, and then there's like 12 million people have died. One vicar killed them all one at a time. The entire village <laughs> wiped off map. And nobody noticed except Barnaby. We've got Barnaby and Troy back together again, of yes. course. So this is directed by Jeremy Silberston, who directed the other ones, and written only by Caroline Graham. Though we've got to give some credit to uh, the author of Amadeus, since so much of that play is included in this episode. Amadeus! Assassin. As always, if you haven't watched the episode recently, we recommend that you go and re-watch it because we'll, there'll be references like assassin that you might not remember if you haven't seen it lately. And as usual, if you don't let your kids watch Midsummer, the podcast probably isn't appropriate for them either, but we're not going to drop F-bombs left and right or anything like that, so... You're pretty safe. If your kids can handle a guy taking a razor to his own throat, they can handle being a maniac. On stage, no less. A maniac on stage? That makes me think of Insane Clown Posse. Yes, I'm exactly. a maniac killer. I think I'm the only person on the face of the planet who has a PhD, likes Midsummer Murder, and likes Insane Clown Posse. Me, I'm unique. If you like Midsummer, have a PhD, and like Insane Clown Posse, we need to hear from you. Yes, you, you are my best friend, and I haven't even met you yet. The episode opens in a very Morse-like way. Yeah, it does. The cold open. The title card happens, and we hear 
opera music. This is very it's common. It's not opera. It's it's ecclesiastical yes. music. It's a very common Morse endeavor Lewis trope yeah. to start the episode like that. It's Agnes Day is the song. And we're introduced to Agnes Gray. Oh, Coincidence. See what we're doing there. Interesting. Uh, who's looking at a holy relic and then gets bonked by a crowbar. She gets hit by a crowbar. <laughs> That's true. That's a very different There's scene. There's no bonking <laughs> in the crowbar. That was a couple episodes ago and there was no crowbar involved in. <laughs> Somebody hits her from behind while she's kneeling and praying at the, the mother and child um, and the, relic. The death sort of noise is not here, but... In the recap later, when she gets hit, she oof, uh, no, it's splattery. like there's like a noise that she cries out. It's, it's more of a bonking noise. <laughs> <laughs> but she's dying. Anyway, Agnes is in a dark place, praying to the mother and child, and she gets crowbar back of the car into the water. And then it's like, Meh, never mind. Anyway, on with the rest of the episode, right? So we're introduced to the. Costin Theater Company. Now, this episode is not a village episode. No. It all happens in town. Yeah. And there is also no pub. Still no pub. Still no pub. The aptly named pub will arrive soon. Yeah, it will. So it's at the Corn Exchange Theater that most of the action happens, which is a relatively small theater. I think it probably seats, what, 50, 100 maybe? Something like that. Yeah. That's That's just one of many... Trivia questions is, what is the theater in Costin? It's the Corn Exchange. The Corn Exchange. Uh, And we're introduced to a whole bunch of players, including the players on the stage and the players behind the stage. We have Deidre and David, who obviously like each other. Like, five minutes in, you're like, oh, well, they should be doing something together. So Deidre is the stage manager. And David is an actor as well as helping her. Yeah. He's he's very helpful. He has white jeans. He's very white. He wears white jeans white the jeans. whole episode when he's not in costume for the I don't play. know why his father's not mad at him for wearing white jeans. Yeah. Because his father's upset also later. involved. Yeah. He's upset later because he's not dating people, but maybe the white jeans have something to do with it. He that. also has a brown jean jacket. Hopefully. It's an outfit of its age. Yep. Yep. It is. It is. And then his father, Colin, and Tom, Tom Barnaby, are working on sets and getting props ready. Because this is our first episode where Joyce's hobbies cause problems, right? Later, she water paints and goes to cookery classes and all kinds of other things. One of many hobbies that lead to death. Because Joyce doesn't have a job. She occupies herself. She's in this production. Joyce is in the production, but she has no lines. Right, but she's also helping out with costumes. Yes, she's she's helping out with the costumes. She's ironing them specifically. (laughs) Then we have Avery and Tim. Avery does the sets and Tim does the lighting. Uh, They're a gay couple who run a bookshop in town. Called the Blackbird. Yes, the Blackbird bookshop. And then we have a number of actors, which include Kitty, who is Eslin's new wife. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to who Eslin is. We have Rosa, who is Eslin's old wife. Yep. Nico, who, Nicholas, who becomes a major player later on. Ah. He marries Cully. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. No, she marries somebody else. She marries a different guy. 
No, she doesn't. Yeah, so so this is tapping into one of the things that I discovered. Because in my head, she also married Nico later. No, she marries Nico. No, she doesn't. Nico is only in one other episode. And it's the episode where he is studying for a police role in a TV show and follows Barnaby and Troy around for a day. Well, then who the hell does, Bar- but does Cully marry? Somebody who looks a lot like Nico but isn't Nico. And we'll have to talk about it later. Does he play Nico the character? Is it just no, like, is this a no, new Darren? No, it's not um, a new Darren Bewitch situation. He's a completely different character. Well, and then I I'm pointed an out because, no, because I also had that alternate narrative in my head. I thought, ooh, this is exciting. Every time you see Nico and Cully together in a scene, there's like little, you know, Tweety birds around their heads and stars and hearts floating I around. Love you. Oh, you know, and you think, oh, this is where they meet. But, no. Okay. Well, I'm wrong. I can fully admit why I'm wrong, and I guess I'm wrong. So. <laughs> I was also wrong. No, that's so. And then we have Eslin, who is the lead of the Amadeus, who is Salieri, because Nico plays Amadeus. Amadeus. And Eslin plays Salieri, and he is an accountant who thinks he's the greatest actor in the world. Also sort of changed in the old wife for the new wife. Kitty is 20 years younger than Rosa, maybe? Probably. I would I would guess that Esalen is probably in his early 50s and Kitty is probably in her mid-20s. So obviously, midlife crisis. He has a car with no top on it. <laughs> he has a wife with barely any top on it. Yes. And while we're talking about, we, we missed two very important members of the behind the stage set, which is Harold and Doris. Well, yeah. so Harold and Doris are the, the, Harold is the director and Doris is his wife. And we had to look because it is unclear what their relationship is. Yeah, there's no reference to them being married in the episode itself. They do have the same last name, but he talks down to her so much and mistreats her so much that you you might have thought maybe she was his little sister and they've lived together all this time. She is the Amy Lydiard of this episode. Yes, she is. Um but mo- I checked the book so. and everything else, and everything says that she is Mrs. Harold Winstanley. So. And Harold is, well, he's a fatuous asshole. There's yeah. really no <laughs> way around it. So we, we, we learned pretty early on that he's in import-export. He's quite wealthy. He drives a very nice old car. Lives in a big house. Big house. Um, but he also has some kind of history with the theater as well he he's really good for like dropping names of big historical uh theater people like he mentions peter hall he mentions peter hall who started the national shakespeare company and he kind of looks like the royal sorry royal shakespeare company with the the scarf the scarf and the hat i I couldn't find a picture of peter hall without a scarf yeah and he makes reference to sir john which i think is probably sir john gilgood right probably and a couple of things but so he's um wow he is the most self-inflated character i think i've ever seen now i have a question for you it is let's see what what year is this this is 1996 97 97 
So it's 1998, it's broadcast. How much would you, Sarah, pay for a night of Amadeus? Hmm. Now it starts at 7.45, it runs Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and there's a show on Saturday. How much would I pay for a ticket? How much Such would a you... nice, historical, intimate theater to see a performance of Amadeus. I would pay... It's got to be two acts, there's an intermission. Yep, interval. Interval. I'd pay 20 bucks. 20 bucks. At this time... The Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday performances are three pounds fifty. What? Which would be eight bucks. That explains American. why there's no really set. Yeah. <laughs> there's no like <laughs> we see Barnaby early on painting this beautiful backdrop that's supposed to look like Vienna or something, and I don't think we ever actually see it on we, stage. It's never on stage. It's and, always just blackness. But Saturday is five pounds. They must make all their money at the concession stand like movie theaters do. Now, one thing they do do on the poster, do do, is <laughs> they have a phone number on the poster. Okay. So you can call the ticket office and reserve your seats? Yes. Oh. High I class. Didn't, I didn't call. I got too nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to phone somebody and ruin their day. Was it a 555 or something? No, like no. One of the it's, fake numbers? it's a British number. I don't think it's a fake number. Oh. Like in America, in North America, the 555 prefix code signifies to the phone company that it's a fake number. Right. There are no real 555 numbers. Speaking of phone numbers, like the phone number on the flyer, the Midsummer Maniacs has a phone number and you can find it in the description of the episode below. And if you ever have a comment or you want to do um, an impression of your favorite Midsummer character or something like that, we will be more than happy to play that in one of our future episodes. Maybe that will dissuade people from doing it. I don't know. But we would love to hear from you. The number is 1-812-720-4594. And we can take texts and or voicemails. Fancy and schmancy. Okay, back to the story. Harold arrives at the theater. Where are my actors? My actors. Eslin and Kitty arrive. The thing I want to talk about here is how... Eslin is being masked by Nico. So they're they're going through a walkthrough of a scene. Eslin's in a chair as Salieri, and Nico as Amadeus is keeps giving giving like them. a soliloquy, and he keeps accidentally walking in front of Eslin and blocking the the audience's view of him in the chair. And we learn Eslin is an accountant, and we learn that Nico, who I thought married Cully, but I was wrong, really feeds into the ego of Harold. Harold here. We find out that Kitty is pregnant and Rosa is upset. Is is there a point where Rosa is not upset in the episode? When she thinks she's given Eslin his comeuppance, she's rather pleased with herself. But for a small amount of time. It's very short. Amount. So so Rosa is in the audience because she's also she also has a part in the play. Um, but she's doing some embroidery or something like that while she's waiting for her turn for the walkthrough. And Eslin and Kitty come in and they're late and they're all like so over the top and everything else. Eslin pats Kitty's bum right in front of Rosa. Definitely rubbing it in. Joyce comes out with Kitty's costume, wants her to try it on. It includes um, a pregnancy pillow to make Kitty look a little chubby. And Kitty says, well, soon I won't even need the pillow. Kitty is Which again is rubbing it in Rosa's face. 
Colleen marries a guy named Simon. I thought his name was Simon, but I wasn't sure. I looked it up. That's right. I was completely wrong. But he looks a little bit like Nico. He does, but it's Simon. It's a completely different guy. Yeah, he's a musician and everything. Some kids find a dead body. They find Agnes. Yeah, so we're in the theater, and then we just cut to two little kids on a little boat. And they're like fishing and splashing There's and a, a lot of fun. direction intercutting of scenes simultaneously. Yeah, there's some sun dappling. Yep. And they find a, a body floating in the water. And of course... Tom gets called. Now, before we jump to that, though, we should also note that, of course, Cully has come home yet again. Well, Cully's come home even more because... Now she's, she's, we find later, she's dropped out of school. She's dropped out of Cambridge. Yeah. I don't know. If my child... She's come down. Yes, come down from Cambridge. You know, your children are adults. Cully's an adult. Yeah. And she can make her own decisions. But as a father, I, I might want to have a five-minute conversation about maybe going back to Cambridge. <laughs> I can only assume that with only one working parent and that parent being a civil servant, that it wasn't easy for them to send her to Cambridge. Well, you see, in the United Kingdom, everything is free because they pay taxes. No. <laughs> it's not just free. <laughs> No, I imagine Cambridge is quite expensive. Yeah. So there's a crime scene, and Barnaby says this weird line where he doesn't know who she is, but he knows who she is. Yeah, I don't understand that. Well, he recognized her. He's seen her at the theater. Yeah, he's seen her at the theater, but he doesn't know her, like, personally. Okay. He doesn't know her, but he can identify her. And her cousin... Her dear, sweet cousin. Her only living relative. Only living relative. Is Eslin, the asshole. Eslin. And she does some fantastic dead body acting here. Though I think in this instance, they may stop the film. Well, but you got to remember, there's also the scene of her underwater. And you clearly see her face. And there are no bubbles. No, she does very well. And the water's moving, so it's not a still. She does very well with that also. I think we should call him Eslin, the accounting asshole now. Does that break our rule? Yeah, kind of. All right, I'll stop saying. (laughs) We find out Agnes had cancer. Troy and Barnaby are off to the house. They go the front door, then the back door. And then a monumental thing occurs. Barnaby pulls out a cell phone. The first cell phone in Midsummer. The first cell phone in Midsummer. And it's funny because when we were rewatching the episode, I wondered, because Tom's at the theater when they find the body... And they somehow reach him at the theater. And, I, and I, I asked, I wonder how they got him. I wonder how they knew where he was. Because before cell phones, if you were on duty as an inspector, they had to know where you were all the time. You'd have to call in and tell the control room where you were going so you, they could reach you. you. Either that or you wore a beeper. A beeper. A bleeper. Bleeper. A bleeper thing. A pager. A pager. So they get they get in the car. They go over to Agnes's house for the first time, and it's ransacked. There's a part in that where Troy says the bastard cut her clothes. Okay, Harold is the killer. Yeah, spoiler. Why did he cut up her clothes? I don't know. I can only think he's a maniac and not a good one like we are. He's a crazy person. Maybe he was trying to throw them off and make it look like it was a robbery or something. But she was found in a pond. That's not where she was killed. Like she's wrapped in something, I think, like plastic or ro- tied up in a rope or something. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's certainly clearly foul, made, foul play right away. Made to look like somebody has ransacked her place looking for something. 
uh, but they can't figure out what that is. The neighbor says, oh, I thought she was off to uh, Austria or something because Agnes travels a lot. Uh, and then, you know, they get back in the car. Troy comments on how Eslin responded to seeing uh, Agnes in the morgue and how he was a cold devil. Yep. Because he does, it's not like he's got a lot of affection for Agnes. No, he doesn't. He calls her a loser. Yeah. <laughs> and a plain little soul. Yeah. Like, that's a nice thing to say. A loser. She was kind of a loser. So they talked to Eslyn Moore and find out she was into art history. She was retired from the BBC. It sounds to me like she had a pretty interesting life. But lonely. Yeah, maybe she was lonely. They go back to the house and find the weird situation that there's no beautiful things there. She's an art history major. Yeah. And then Troy, Uh, and I, I gotta say, what? No, go ahead. I got to say, in this episode, Troy is the best cop that he's ever been. Yeah. So far. He's got his up moments in this episode, at least. Because he says, maybe she felt she didn't deserve nice things because she had no confidence. That's pretty insightful. And I'm like, way to go, Troy, in my notes. Yeah. He's pretty smart. So you were going to say something. So then they get in the car and Barnaby says, do you want to have lunch? Which might have been in a pub. It could have been. But they didn't. Well, they slowed down near a pub. Because Troy needs to buy a book for his mom's birthday. And he goes to the Blackbird. Yeah. And Avery freaks him out. Well, because Troy is so homophobic. It's like he thinks being gay can be transmitted through breath or something. (laughs) He scratches his neck like he's about to become gay-fected. Yeah, like he's going to get cooties from the gay guy. Gay cooties. Which... To give Avery his credit, he seems to enjoy kind of taunting Troy and kind of rubbing it in. So Troy's mom is in into some heritage Edwardian lady stuff. Which I didn't understand either. I tried looking it up. I couldn't find anything. But apparently she's already got all the books and the pot holders and the wall clock and everything else. So there, it must be like collector's items around a series of I books. I guess. He ends up getting her a car vacuum even though she doesn't have a car. So, so I have a question about Avery. Mm-hmm. And I mean He's this... He's fantastic. He wears vests and bow ties. I mean this sincerely. So, Four Weddings and a Funeral, one of the characters in that movie is gay. Well, two of them are gay. Okay. And he wears fantastic waistcoats. hmm Is fantastic waistcoats and bow ties, because he also wears bow ties, an actor that appears in Midsummers in the future? hmm Is that the gay uniform in the 90s in England? Or is that like, is it like code? I don't want to say code, but, but is it code? Well, <laughs> the, the, the costume people are making that decision. So they must think if I put this character in a fancy waistcoat and bow tie, people will know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, he's a gay. Right away. <laughs> well, Troy doesn't need to see it. No. Troy reacts so extremely like, <laughs> I had to rewind one part because I could have swore I saw Troy wipe his hand off after touching something in the bookstore he, he didn't but I I wouldn't have put it past him he is clearly uncomfortable yeah then we go back to the police office and find out a little bit more about Agnes because she had a key around her neck a key to something a key to something a big padlock yeah they don't know what though don't worry, they'll forget until, like, almost the end of the episode. Yeah, because, you know, it's just the first murder. It happens in the cold opening, so we don't have to think about it again until, like, later. So you've already talked about Eslin's office and them going and talking to him and her working for the BBC and everything, but there's something about Eslin's office that I need to know. And if any of the listeners have an idea, please share it, okay? It's always a good moment 
in a midsummer in which one of us says, what the hell is that thing? Rewind, <laughs> rewind. Go back, go back, go back, go back. When you're in Eslin's office looking at Barnaby and Troy from Eslin's point of view, his office is in kind of like a Tudor conversion. There's a lot of exposed woodwork on the inside, including, including some pretty low rafters. And there's a rafter that is kind of immediately in front of his desk. And it's just above Tom and Troy's heads. And, and on the rafter. On that rafter is a linear camshaft. Exactly. <laughs> So a camshaft is like, a, it's, it's some, if you could imagine like a cylinder that has a series of gears or cams on it that are different shapes and sizes and are in different positions. So that it is, as it turns, if something is riding on it, it would move up and down or back and forth, right? I guess. So um, I'm not the most mechanically minded okay, person. I am. So old looms had camshafts that drove the heddles up and down. But this a, is a, clearly from a car. Yeah. I mean, that's the only explanation I can think of. And camshafts of that kind aren't real popular in cars because they're not as reliable with movement. I don't know. If it's from a car, that's great. He, he does obviously like cars. Maybe somebody can tell us. But it took me... Quite a while to identify what that thing was. So we have a question. And why would you put a heavy metal thing right above people's heads? I don't know. That's roundish. That could easily roll. So we have a question. If you're living in the UK and you have an accountant and you've gone to their office, do they have a camshaft? <laughs> and a secretary who they run out of the office on short notice. You can have the rest of the day off. My boss has never busted in my door and said, you can have the rest of the day off. <laughs> No. No, never no. happened. Back at Agnes's house, they start going through her mail. Troy finds gold. Yeah, the donkey letter. He goes... It's a letter with a donkey on it. He goes, it's a letter with a donkey on it. <laughs> Barnaby's like, I'm working with a child yeah. here. But and then so Troy, Troy reads starts it. starts to read the letter, and we find out that Agnes has given 150,000 pounds. To a donkey sanctuary. To a donkey sanctuary. And the donkey sanctuary on the letter is entitled the donkey sanctuary. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you, what are they going to call it? I don't know. Quaintance house donkey? or something. <laughs> <laughs> they could. Avery's ass house. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's, do they all wear bow ties and vests? So she's she clearly has way, way more money than they had assumed that she has. Because she lives in these really modest rooms and yet and has 150 clothes. grand to give to donkeys. And the letter actually says, thank you for another donation. Yeah, like she's given him that much before. The next couple of scenes all meld together in that kind of intercutting thing. Yeah. Right? We have Eslin going to the lawyer. He leaves Kitty behind. Kitty, to go to the lawyer. Kitty is at the house who has a friend over. Yeah. So while he's at the lawyer, she has somebody over in bed. And Rosa is outside creeping. Yeah. Her and Laura creeping around the neighborhood. <laughs> is, is this a middle-aged woman thing in England to be creeping? Because I'm, I'm getting close to middle age and I don't feel the need to creep. 
It's not calling we, to me. We've had two episodes in which we have creeping middle-aged women. Well, they're nosy. I guess. And they want to know something. So that's how you do it. So Rosa so, starts out by just kind of spying. But then when she sees Kitty in the window, clearly wrapped in a sheet. Because that's whoa, what you do. Okay, if you're having okay, an affair, okay, whoa, whoa, go to the window semi-naked. There's a couple of things we got to go through, right? <laughs> So Rosa is creeping, and you're like, oh, that's kind of strange. And then she goes up to Kitty's car and starts keying it. Now, when she keys the car, the first time we don't see the key. We see the key, but we don't actually see it on the car. Right. We hear the sound. And yep. I was like, oh, okay. They obviously didn't key the car. They just added the sound effect. The next thing we see with Rosa and the car is her actually keying a letter into the car i don't it's not the same car well you don't see the whole car in that scene it may no. just be the side of a car it's the side like of some one car. panel that's been well painted that she's scratching but she's clearly scratching some letters into it you got the and, sound and she looks up and sees kitty who has come to the window in a sheet yeah now a floor not, to ceiling window on the front of the house, the street facing side of the house. I'm not a woman. No, you're not. I'm not a woman. <laughs> but I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> and Rosa notices that she has company. Yeah, because some hands reach around her and kind of pull her back into the room. So now Rosa's got the dirt. Meanwhile, Esland is at the lawyer's office Make being all high and mighty. That he's not going to get anything because he only has two legs and no tail. Yeah, because Agnes is is known for caring about animals more than people. So no question that her will leaves all of her money to these animal charities. But she has left a letter behind a, a package for Eslin that says that it's to be opened after her death. I think the lawyer buries the lead here. Like, should he not be giving that right away? That's what lawyers do. I guess. Especially in will readings. You know? They don't have a lot of drama. He probably got Freaks a little... Eslin out. Oh, he runs yeah, back to his office. Kicks his PA kicks out. Kicks the PA out <laughs> and starts looking at the documents, which are obviously spreadsheety. Yeah, it's like a bank statement. Speaking of banks, Troy and Barnaby learn that over the last couple of years, Agnes has put 86,000 pounds through her bank. Right. This is... $2 million in real money. There's this interesting conversation with Tom and Troy as they're walking away and talking about how Agnes gave all of her money to these animal charities. And Troy is like, why, why would you give it all to animals? You know, and Barnaby's like, well, everybody needs something to love. And animals love you back. Yeah. Troy says, I wouldn't fancy cuddling up at night to a cocker spaniel and Tom says, don't knock it before you try it. Which is weird, and he doesn't like animals in the house. <laughs> we know from the last know episode allergic. He doesn't like animals. <laughs> but, based on what you researched, who is Troy actually cuddling? Oh, night? yeah, so this is so weird. Book adaptations, they always have to make changes from the book. They can't follow the plot exactly. But in the books... Uh, and especially in this book, we see a lot of Troy's wife. What? Maureen. Oh, it's not a good name. No. Like, she goes to the play with him and everything. And she's she's a number. She's interesting. She's just about as crass as he is. It's like Troy in a dress. 
And isn't there something like with Cully or something? Yeah, she thinks that Troy has eyes for Cully. Nags at him about it. In the end, Esland calls up the murderer. Yeah. And says, I don't want to say murder, but murder. Yeah. <laughs> and then puts the document on a floppy. So he's, it's on a computer disk. Then he gets rid of the other copy. I really, he, sh- he shreds the paper copy. Which I don't really understand why he did that or had to do that. It's evidence. I guess. Agnes has left for him these documents only to be opened after she's dead that reveal transactions that she feels guilty about. Now, she thought she was going to die of cancer. Yeah. She didn't think she was in danger of being murdered. Right. She didn't do it for that reason. It wasn't like, if I'm found dead, open this letter, right? You get the sense that maybe she left it to him because she felt bad and guilty, and he's an accountant, so he would see those statements and he would understand. Oh, he understands right away. Oh, yeah, and then uses it to blackmail somebody. I'm not going to say murder, but murder. Yeah. (laughs) He gives him until Monday. In this episode, you, the days you never are know all what day it is. Screwed up. Yeah, you never know what day it is in this episode. Yeah. The time and the days are all screwed up. Eslin goes home. Then Crazy Rosa's- Kitty is in the bathtub, and Rosa calls him and dishes on Kitty. Yeah. She's singing opera, and the actress has a really great voice. I, I have a note here that. I Rosa wonder if Rosa can sing. Yeah, she sings La Boheme. Yeah, she's a trained singer. So, uh, so she calls him, and it, the, the whole idea is that she's telling Eslin that Kitty's having an affair in hopes of getting him back. I don't know why she would want him back. He's horrible, but she's kissing his photo and all that stuff. And, but then the next time we see Kitty, which is he's kicking scene. her out, he's and kicking she her, has a bruise on her and face. And he's hit her. Yeah. Let's cover this. I already called him Eslin the accounting asshole, but now he's abusive too. He's abusive. He dumped one wife for a younger woman. And and really, the crux of what Rosa has a problem with is she always wanted a child, and Eslin never said he wanted to have a child. Yeah. And then Kitty's magically pregnant. Yeah. Well, no. Is she? It's not magically pregnant. We know is exactly she how she's pregnant. Can... I don't know that she is. Who, who... We see her smoking and drinking and everything she else. She so. indeed does a lot of smoking and drinking. Then um, Tom and Troy get a call from a friend of Agnes. Her name's um, Peggy Marshall, who was kind of her church mentor. So we, we learn that Agnes joined the Catholic Church fairly recently, which is pretty late in life, which is not uncommon. People find out they're terminally ill. They turn to religion. You know, they make this big scene out of Peggy basically saying she was guilty about something, but I don't know what. That's It's that's a long all we scene. It doesn't need to be there. Yeah. It also is implied in a couple of scenes through there that Nico is having the affair with Kitty because we don't see who it has. Yeah. We know it's a man and he has a hand. Yeah. That's all we know. Well, and um, Tim and Avery joke about how Nico's never around and he's always slipping in and out of the bookshop. So they think maybe he's having an affair with somebody. And so it's natural to assume that maybe it might be Nico. He's young and handsome, so but it's not. I want to put something else out there. In the shop and in the lighting booth, Tim and Avery are drinking almost constantly. Yeah, but they also have really good food. They do have very good food, but they're drinking constantly. <laughs> Every time Avery opens up a hamper and offers Tim some food, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. I want some of that. 
opening night. Yeah. Okay. So so this is Thursday. Agnes. This is Thursday. I thought it was Wednesday. It was opening night. No, no. it's thir- It's Wednesday. You're right. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Wednesday opening night. Yeah. So forget Agnes of no importance anymore right now. Harold's in the front being trying to be a host at front of house. Darling, how lovely to see you. Sold out as usual. But he, it's always all about him. Oh, gosh. He's so senile. He's crazy. Deidre's father comes. Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs. And it's mentioned that he was out directing traffic at Badger's Drift. Yeah. He doesn't even know that area. <laughs> The great thing about Mr. Tibbs is that he shows up and he just wants to wish everybody good luck. He's clearly senile. In his pajamas. Yeah, and he's got his striped pajamas on underneath his jacket and pants. He's a very <laughs> positive guy. guy. Yeah, he just he wishes everybody good luck. <laughs> Eslin calls Nicholas Nicholas. Yeah. Because he thinks Kitty is having an affair with him. Yeah. And Kitty and Nicholas are having it. There's one thing. It bothers me. It's stupid. I don't know why it's even in there. Nicholas is a theater person. He wants to go to drama school. He's beyond high school age. Yes. And he drops a Scottish play reference, which he would have known all that. He would have known it was bad luck. If he, he's been in any theater, he would have known it was bad luck to quote Macbeth. I don't even know why it's there. And saying that Eslin is too full of the milk of human kindness isn't even a good fit. Like, it's not even a good line to quote at that point. But it gives a chance for that guy who's playing King Leopold or whatever. With the eyebrows drawn with the on. the eyebrows drawn on. To, he has a couple of good lines. Yeah. There. He's not a bad actor. Yeah. Troy and Cully meet. Yes. Barnaby introduces them. They've never met before. And Troy tries to sit with Cully and Barnaby, but he can't sit with them well he's he's got a seat first and he assumes they're gonna sit down next to him yes. and then they go a couple rows down and sit in center and he's kind of like oh okay okay yeah well because he should be sitting up there with his wife i guess <laughs> so there's the in, in all of harold's like meeting and greeting there's a scene where he's talking to this little old woman who looks so much like the queen did you notice yes, her like, i did she, notice like, her like, Easily, that woman can pretend to be the queen at public events. They wish... What is very verissimo? Yes. They wish Joyce to... Break a leg and a neck. Break a leg and a neck. I didn't know that was a phrase. <laughs> and once again, Joyce is a crone. How many times is Joyce a crone in this show? She, she does tend to play that part when she's in some kind of theater. Nico and Cully run into each other and stares. Oh, hearts... Stars, <laughs> happiness. And Kitty tells Rosa how awful uh, Eslin said it was to be married to her. Just rubbing it in because they're both upset now. Well, Kitty's upset because she's getting dumped and Rosa's happy. So a couple of things. So the play starts. Assassin, assassin, assassin. At the interval, Barnaby looks after Deidre's dad. Yep. He goes so to get nice. him a cup of coffee. He's, He's a good so guy. Nice. It's clear that though Coston is a bigger city than the villages that are included in the show, that he's well known, especially among the theater people. They all know him as Tom. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And Troy shows he's kind of a country copper here, though, because he's like, I'm not used to going to the theater. He's never been to the theater <laughs> never before. Never been to the theater before. And Cully's like, this is not theater. Yeah, this isn't really theater. Well, we've got a couple of scenes with Tim and Avery and their good sandwiches and there's a light out and... But then... Eslin's so mean to Kitty on stage, he 
is mean to Nico on stage. This is all setting up red herrings, yeah. of course. Yeah. It, they And they have this meeting backstage that Eslin's out of control. Well, because he clearly is. He's got a, a role that is supposed to be powerful and yet ages dramatically throughout the play and then becomes somebody who has no power. Sort of like himself. Exactly. A hollow man. So I think it's it's coming home to him. So he yeah, he turns his ring around and shakes Nico's hand on stage really deeply. He overacts with Kitty and shoves her to the ground and is really rough with her, which the theater troupe all know isn't part of the play. He's not supposed to do that. Kitty is roughed up, hit, smokes, and drinks. This is going to be a tough pregnancy, if there is a pregnancy. I don't think she's pregnant. I want to go back just a second. Okay. To the meet and greet before the play starts. Okay. So Uh, there's Harold, the queen. Yeah. So, but in the book, there's this... Well, in the book, Doris is much more put together. Well, we haven't even started talking about Doris. I mean... Doris is obviously very mousy and yes, yeah, yes, yes, oh, 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 okay, oh, okay, Harold, you know, like she's clearly browbeaten and I mean, really sad, but in the book, she's, she's a little bit more put together, but she does have that horrible cardigan on, but they don't make any reference to that. What is it? A net that's on her head? That awful I kind don't of know. whatever that is head. Is she cooking in a fry shop later? <laughs> it's like a veil, but only goes down to her eyebrows or something. Anyway. In the book, Doris meets Cully for the first time, or no, for the second time. And I just thought this was great because we keep joking kind of about how Cully's dropped out of college and all this stuff. But in the books, she is so much more rebellious. We had the line about the green hair and tattoo in the episode before. When Doris meets Cully, she's struck by how different Cully looks because the last time she met, and I quote, she met Barnaby's daughter. The child had sported a green and silver crest of hair, was covered in black leather, and hung with chains. This is a different Cully. <laughs> I kind of am interested in that like, other was Cully. She punk Cully? Punk Cully. I guess. But now she's dressed in something much more fashionable and kind of cute, and her hair's and her hair's black, very dark black. And not blonde. Not blonde at all. Not blonde. Not blonde at all. Salieri's death scene. Yeah. If you remember anything about this episode, if it's been a while since you've seen it, this is what you remember. So the idea is that there is a razor, a straight razor, that is covered in tape. Scotch tape. Transparent tape. Don't say scotch tape. Transparent tape. Transparent tape. Because scotch tape is a slur. It's not our sponsor. Sticky tape. (laughs) (laughs) And the idea is that that will make it safe so he can run it across his neck and pretend to and die. Pretend to die. The razor has been switched. There's no tape on the blade. And Eslin kills himself. On stage. On stage. In front of a packed audience. In front of Joyce and David. And the audience, yeah. And the audience. And Joyce does some great acting here. She freaks out. You're not supposed to look out at the audience, you know? And she's playing a silent character who's supposed to be standing meekly behind Salieri. She's his cook. And then that happens. And I, I remember the first time I saw this episode, way, way back, I felt that moment of panic. Yeah. It is one of the worst deaths in Midsummer, And that's saying something. And really affects Joyce. And it's a suit. I mean, 
suppose, I mean, he kills himself, right? There's not somebody there stabbing at him, which would be horrible. But the fact that he does it to himself, not knowing. And there's that look of realization in his eyes after he's done it. Yeah. And, then and he, they do a very good job of not showing anything. Right. Because with like their, there's not a crowd shot with blood <laughs> spurting out, right? With their effects budget, they couldn't have done it realistically. But in the book, it's very clear that she knows exactly where Tom is sitting. She says, what, what seat are you in? And he says, I'm in like C1. And she's like, good, I'll know not to look there. Like, because she doesn't want to get nervous. But at that moment, when she realizes what's happened, she turns out to the audience, like, m- mutely at first. And it's clear she's looking for Tom. And Tom... And, and then she screams. Tom jumps into action. into action. And Troy does immediately, too. Mm-hmm. Troy, again, this is Troy's best police performance. Yep. He is on the case right away. And he gets there and shuts the curtain, which to me, for somebody who's never been to the theater, he sure knows how, where the curtain goes. I, I think anybody who knows what a theater is knows where the curtain goes. I, uh, there are pulleys. I mean, he was in school, remember? In the book, the razor is it's described so well. Can I read this a little yeah. bit to you? Eslin lifted the razor and with one dramatic sweep, drew it across his throat. It left a bright red line. He stood for a moment, frowning down at the blade, unexpectedly scarlet. So he has this like, huh? It's that moment, right? Because it's so sharp. It, you probably wouldn't feel it. Yeah. He swayed forward, then jerked himself upright as if with a great effort. The keeper of the cakes, that's Joyce, Bustled cheerfully on with the breakfast tray. Salieri took a step to meet her. She stared at him, her mouth shaped in a silent O. Then she dropped the tray and caught him as he fell. Then she screamed. Shrieks of pure terror over and over again while the bright blood flowed over her snowy fichu and dove gray skirt onto the boards beneath. Joyce, in the book, is covered in blood. Covered. Because she catches him in her arms. It's an ingenious death. Yeah. It's a dramatic death that sticks with you. For all his nutsy bobo-ness, Harold does a good job of killing him. Yeah. (laughs) And then blames him for ruining his play. (laughs) How dare he? While we're on the razor, though, uh, it's funny because I've got a Google alert set up for Midsummer and... Um, we both follow the Midsummer subreddit. Hello, Redditors out there. We love you. Um, there was a story a few years ago in New Zealand. Some kids were putting on a production of Sweeney Todd, and you think they would have seen the Midsummer or something. The razor in that case was supposed to have been taped. <laughs> yeah, they thought some duct tape was going to do it or something. So yeah, so a couple of the kids were injured, but one of the kids actually had his throat slit five centimeters deep. His trachea was exposed. Can you imagine seeing your kid on stage and that happening to your kid? What happened to Eslin on stage? Like, ah, oh, geez. Okay, so just a tip. If you're going to produce Amadeus or Sweeney Todd or any other theater production which happens to involve a razor, like if you're doing West Side Story and the Jets have their razors out, they can be fake. It's Okay. We forgive you. I'm okay with that. I'm going to suspend my disbelief and not notice that they're plastic. That's all right. I'm completely fine with that. And health and safety is also completely fine with yep. that. Yep. Don't use real razors on stage, kids. 
Poor Mr. Tibbs stumbles out of the theater. Oh, he talking, makes a run for it. Blood of the lamb. Blood, blood of, of the, the lamb. He's just a big red herring in his striped pajamas. Yeah. That's what he is. And everybody's insisting there was tape on the blade. There was tape on the blade, which I'm saying tape was not enough, people. Like the whole time they're insisting that there was tape. Who took the tape off? I'm thinking, why did you rely on tape to begin with? I digress. Harold is so annoying backstage. It's the typical, everybody here has to stay put until we've talked to all of you scene, right? In lots of mystery shows. Everybody gets impatient, waiting their turn to give a statement, whatever. But Harold is so obnoxious. He can't even stand that Barnaby talks to anyone before him. Including his friend, yeah, Colin Sim. Yeah. And he goes, there's one thing I can't stand. It's high-handedness. <laughs> ring, you- ring, it's Pot calling Kettle down in the green room when everybody clears out because they've been told they can go home and give a statement tomorrow. Harold's like, I elect to be seen now. And he sits down and he says, well, Tom, it was like this. And he stands up and Tom is gone. Yes. (laughs) Tom has no time for his bullshit. (laughs) None of it. Now, Nico goes and helps Joyce home with Cully. Well, Harold felt a sinister frisson in this production from the beginning. Yeah, because you did it. You are the sinister free zone. Yeah. Oh, he's more than a free zone. Yeah. So Deidre's run off to go find her dad and some police help her track him down. And he climbs the top of the senior center or whatever and gets scared <sighs> and jumps off. The, um, the stunt man they have that plays him in the jump Is looks a, nothing like him. A completely <laughs> different person. Like, they didn't even try to find somebody of similar height. (laughs) Now, the two constables, it's a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. I noticed that. Yeah. And there's two of them. While later, a constable that comes out to bust Troy is just one. Yeah, he's on his own. It's just on his own. Yeah, well, they're looking for somebody at night, right? So they go in pairs. I guess so. Doris is uh, is sleeping in the audience waiting for Harold. I love that she, she gets startled and she kind of like startles awake and goes outside to follow him. And he's gone. He just drives away. He left her. How did she get home? How oh, does Doris well, get home? They ask a constable. Oh, that's right. He home. asks a constable. Yeah. Because Tom... Is a wonderful person. Yeah, I, can't, I, could, I just couldn't believe like Harold just leaves her behind. I felt so bad for her. Now, do you remember when you first saw this episode? Like who you suspected, and like did did you think it was Harold from the beginning, or were you fooled by any of the red herrings? Can you remember? I can't really remember this episode because I think I was doing something else. Because Eslin's death is like fifty minutes in. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm getting kind of tired waiting for another death. Yeah, you're like, murder, come on. It's called Midsummer Murder. And yeah. then all of a sudden that happens. And it's so like... <gasps> yeah, it's such a shocking death. And I was like, what did I miss through the whole 50 minutes of boredom before this? So the first time I saw this episode, it was long after it had aired for the first time. And it must have been after 2004, actually, because... I had this creeping suspicion that it was Doris the whole time. Well, until until we kind of get to this point where Harold kind of ditches her, I always thought 
she's not as kooky as she pretends to be. Like she's up to something. And we were, when we rewatched it, I was trying to figure out why I had thought that. And the reason I know that I must have seen this episode for the first time after 2004 was the same actress who plays Doris, whose name is Angela Pleasance, who's the doctor, uh, the daughter of Donald Pleasance, Donald Pleasance from Halloween, Halloween and every other movie in the 80s. Yeah. She's in this great Poirot that Tim Curry is in as well. Um, which one is it? Uh, Appointment with Death. And in that Poirot, she plays this nanny who's also very mousy, very quiet, very shy. But then you learn through the episode that she has been at the at the order of her mistress torturing children, like almost drowning them, beating them with sticks. I mean, doing really yeah. heinous things to them. And I hated that character so much in that Poirot that it stuck with me. So when I saw the same actress kind of playing the same kind of mousy, quiet part, I just thought she's a bad guy. It must have been. But I had to kind of think it through, like, where did I know her from? And it's from that darn Poirot. Mm. But I suspected her that she didn't do it. She didn't do it. Everybody gets interviewed and... Well, and Troy, again, in one of his smart cop moments in this one, when he's discussing the possibilities with Barnaby the next day, he says, well, maybe Kitty did it. And Tom's like, well, why do you think that? And she says, well, because they know that he was going to divorce her and she was having an affair. Which is a, a valid line Absolutely. of Absolutely. It, it makes her a suspect. Well, she could have killed him at home, but then it would have looked like a domestic and she would have been a suspect right away. So she does it this way. She, she, you know, she throws shade on everybody else. Again, well thought out. And Barnaby says, good point. And Troy has this look on his face like, I did make a good point. <laughs> like he looks surprised that he might've figured something out Poor Troy. And then he says it may be Kitty's fancy man. Fancy man. Which already Barnaby thinks. Is Nico. Is Nico. Yeah. So everybody thinks that Kitty and Nico are doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone gets interviewed, including the gay guys at the bookshop with Troy. Troy gets sent there by himself. And practically shoves his badge down their throats. And they just make saucy gay jokes at him. Yeah. They basically taunt him, which he deserves at that point. It comes to where is Colin's my? Yes. So they go to Colin's house. Colin, who is the older man, who's the father of David, who's in the yep. play. And Colin is the one that Tom is painting the scenery with early on. He's, he's kind of a non-entity, if you don't remember that. He's a nice guy. Yeah, but he's just not a critical character. And he confesses to the murder. Yeah. And Troy, in another moment of good copmanship, good cop personship, good copship, <laughs> good policing, good policing, <laughs> is like catches him in a lie. Yeah. Because he says he he flushed the tape. Yeah, and the the tape from the razor. And Troy says we tried that; it floats. So now I have this image of Troy in a toilet, like tearing off pieces of tape from a roll and dropping them in and flush. No, let's try again. No. <laughs> Cause I don't think there was a forensic sucko guy, you know, off to the side trying to flush tape. So Meanwhile, poor Joyce is at home just still in shock. Well, Kelly's taking care yeah. of her. She's really, really beside herself over this. Let's finish off Colin. Colin is confesses. Yes. They know it's not true. 
David it's comes clear home. He's confessing on behalf of somebody else. David's coming home. Barnaby figures out that Colin is protecting David because Colin saw David doing something at the props table. Yeah. And what he did was he put Vim, which is caustic. It's like it's um, Ajax. It's it's which is like they're, comet, they're right? Like an abrasive thing that you scrub the sink with or something. Ajax, Vim, and Comet are relatively the same thing. Yeah. So he sprinkled that on the cakes that Salieri has to eat on. This stage. is poison. Yeah, but it's he not very much. It doesn't kill him. So it comes out, and Troy really has a great exit line again. <laughs> yeah, because it's clear there's like nothing to do here. These two are not are not guilty. Don't do it again. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, what my boss said. So then they go and interview Kitty, and the interview is completely irrelevant. She says some things, but good lord, what the hell does she have on? It has letters and words that I think are in French, but it's see-through, and there's a bra part, and then a mini skirt. Yeah, it's. It's clearly like, uh, you know, funeral widow chic. But there's, okay, so this is the next day. There's no funeral yet. No, but she's, she's in mourning. Just, she's wearing her widow's Yeah, weeds. but she's just sitting around at home. Why is she not in sweats and a t-shirt? Because she's not really sad. Well, I guess so. She has a black handkerchief. But, oh. but why put on sort of posh, sleazy clothes? Because she's got to look good. I guess. He's a cheeky bugger. Yes, she calls Troy a cheeky bugger. They feel it's a waste of a day. Yeah. But it's not a waste of a day because they got rid of a whole bunch of suspects, leaving really only a few, mostly one's named Harold. Yeah. Then, Then Tom gets a random phone call. From... The chip van man with the awesome bacon sandwiches. Yeah. Because <laughs> they found the vehicle. Because remember, there's another body. Yes, Agnes. Oh, that's right. We've arrived at the almost end of the episode. The return to Agnes. Barnaby gives Troy the key and says, look at all these garages. The key that was around at Agnes's neck that all this time they knew was for some kind of padlock or something, but they had no evidence of where that might and be. While you're going to do that, I'm going to sit in the car and read the paper and eat my bacon sandwich. Well, wouldn't you? Yes. Have your lackey go do it. But Troy, in all his excellent policing in this episode, has forgotten how keys and locks work. Yeah, it's almost like one of those bad um, TV infomercials where somebody's purposefully doing something awful to make a product look good, you know? It's like he takes the key and waves it at the lock and is like, uh, why is this not working? It won't work. I'm going to go to the next one. So then a cop shows up. Trying a bit of breaking and entering, sir. <laughs> and... This is the UK and this is the 90s because Troy reaches in his coat, which any cop would immediately go, stop. Well, but remember, that cop doesn't even have a gun. So what's he going to say? Stop again? Stop. If Troy's whipping out a weapon. Or I'll say stop again. So Troy takes out his warrant card and then the constable comes and they find the religious artifact. But they open the garage and on the back of the garage door is... Blood splatter. Blood splatter. And they walk right past it. I think Barnaby almost puts his hand in it. Because they kind of push the garage door open. And there's like this big like splatter of blood. They've never known where Agnes was killed. 
Clearly she was transported to the water and dumped in the water. Clearly she wasn't killed in her apartment. They've checked it. There's no evidence there that she was killed there. So- I'm surprised they didn't find a monogrammed uh, crowbar with Harold's name on it. A bonking it. crowbar? A bonking crowbar. Um, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't open the door, see the blood, and say, stop, we need to call Sako. We shouldn't go in there. There might be evidence. You think? But that would have slowed down the episode, right? So they go in and they find the effigy. They find the mother and child. And they realize that she's dealing in stolen artifacts. Yeah. Which explains the spreadsheet, which explains the money, which explains the donkey donations. Which is why eventually Barnaby puts it together. Troy says they need heavy freight to move this. And Barnaby's like, import, export. Because... In the very first scene yeah. where Barnaby and Joyce are the talking. The first scene with dialogue. They're talking. They mention that Harold's an import exporter and he's doing well. In passing. Don't forget, though. It's a clue, Scoob. While Barnaby is at the garage finding the effigy, Cully's at home making a grocery list with shocked Joyce. Poor and we Joyce. learn for the first time, though we will hear it again. Barnaby likes chunky marmalade. Chunky marmalade. At first I thought it was peanut butter, but then I remembered the marmalade. Yeah, because he likes marmalade yeah. and relish. Yes. We hear about the relish later. Relish Another later. episode. Oh, so she'll be all right. She'll be fine. Kelly goes off and we go back well, to the Well, she goes shop. off on a date. Well, she, she says she's going to go to the grocery store, but she might stop by the Blackbird on her way to see Nicholas. Nicholas. So we go to the bookshop. Yeah. Where Harold may give his most over the top performance. As Dracula's mother. <laughs> Avery makes a good joke. Yeah. There. He says, Oh great. Here comes Dracula's mother. No, it's Tim that says that. Oh, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> they want to lock him out, but they know that he won't go away. So they let him in. <laughs> we, we learn that Nico's got a place in drama school and they're really excited. And, Harold has just gotten a, a lease on a new theater and he thinks that the world's opening up to him again. So if Nico's not having an affair with Kitty, who is? Tim? Tim. <laughs> Some call so me Tim. Tim plays for both teams. Well, we knew that already. Because unlike Avery, he wasn't making sequin jockstraps for Paddington when he was a little boy. Yeah, we skipped over the sequin jockstrap for Paddington. If you have a picture of a sequin jockstrap on Paddington, I will gladly repost that picture. Yes, because <laughs> it would be fabulous. The question is, does it go over or under the coat? <sighs> I don't <laughs> Sometimes I ask questions that you just don't know how to I answer. Just, I just think of Paddington opening up the coat and then... <laughs> then we get that great scene of... Uh, because Kitty's getting rid of Eslin's clothes, right? She doesn't miss him. She's not sorry to see him go. And she finds the floppy disk. In her and, couture wear. Again. Yeah. yeah. She finds the floppy disk in the and pants And she has pocket, no idea what pocket. that floppy she disk is. She doesn't know what she... it is. But it was in the jacket that he had on most recently. No, so. I don't I don't think she doesn't know what's on it. I don't think she knows what it is. Yeah. Like what a disc is? Yes. <laughs> like what do you think the label says? Like evidence or Agnes's bad things or blackmail disc. Proof that Harold is guilty. Yeah. Harold murder proof. 
Anyway, she clearly realizes that it's... Dot ev- exe. Yeah, that it's evidentiary. And she goes to the police station, but Tom and Barnaby are just leaving. She tries to get their attention, so she waves it. <laughs> she waves it like, look, look what I have. But she doesn't say anything. No, they're long gone. So she slips it through the mail slot. It's, but they do find it, so it's, it's okay. It's, it's weird. She slips it through the mail slot of a busy police station. It's, uh, it's Which it would probably get stepped on. and uh, You, you anyway. would think... And then Barnaby has his Barnaby tells all moment where he recounts the entire crime to this, Troy on the way to the on the this way. This is where we hear Harold's. Agnes's death yell. Yeah, her her crowbar bonking. At the same time, poor Doris finds the razor in the medicine cabinet while she's cleaning with Ajax. This episode brought to you by Vim and Ajax. We know that Harold had a second razor. And the way he accomplished giving a non-taped razor to Esalen, because they always assumed that somebody would have to be backstage with like a Stanley knife or something, scraping off the tape. And, and not flushing it. Right, because it would float. Um, it, it would be difficult to remove it, so it would take a few minutes and somebody would be seen doing that. But, but Harold's not done that. He's got a second razor. So he swaps the razors ahead of the interval, and then he is able to take the tape off at his leisure... And then swaps it back. But then he goes home and takes the duplicate razor and puts it in the medicine cabinet. Just because. Well, if you actually used a straight razor to shave with, I would expect it to be in your medicine cabinet. But Doris clearly doesn't expect to see a razor in the medicine cabinet. She fumbles it and basically knocks everything out of the medicine cabinet. As he comes home. Which gets Harold's attention so he knows something's up because he knows that's where he's put it. And he attacks her with the razor, and it's scary. It is scary. She's trapped in a bathroom. There's no way out. He's between her and the door. He has a razor, and all she has is her ugly sweater. But this is the second episode in a row where crazy person with edge weapon attacking mousy person upstairs in Big House. I'm just saying there's a pattern. But Harold doesn't go diving out the window. No. No. He does cut her, though. Yeah. She defends herself with her arms, which I can only imagine if that was actually a sharp razor, that would be some real damage. It, it would be real damage. Thankfully, she has her sweater and her potholders. <laughs> it's a... It's a uh, wow. wow. Somebody could do a fashion line of Doris's ugly sweaters, but it would have mm-hmm. to come with that thing she wears on her head. With the, the hair net. Yeah. So... Harold kind of enters a fugue state here where he thinks he's like, oh, Tom, you're here. Yeah, he snaps in and out of that kind of craziness to his fantasy world where everything's fine. And he needs his hat because the press is down. He just has to have gotten rid of anybody who was in his way. They were pesky people. Well, and, and Eslin, right? And now that they're gone, he can go on to his big success. And he goes downstairs and we see Doris, poor Doris, getting in an ambulance. Thankfully, Doris gets some help. Yeah, he doesn't want to go downstairs initially. And Tom has to kind of convince him that the press are down there and everything's a go. And he doesn't really believe him. He kind of doubts Tom until Tom says that um, Schofield will be there. And I had to look up Schofield and it turns out it's Paul Schofield who was... Very well-known actor, long, long time. He 
he had a, a CBE, which is kind of like an OBE. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very well known. So he gets downstairs, goes in the police car. Yeah. If you have a chance to watch this episode again, pay close attention to Harold's facial expressions from the door of the house to the door of the car. Because it's, I'm okay. Wait a minute, no. I'm not. Yes, I oh, am. Yes, I am. No, no I'm, I'm not. not. <laughs> Maybe I am. Maybe not. <laughs> it's, it's really well done. Really well done. So we have a, a dinner scene at the Barnaby's, which is always a horror story. But Kelly helped cook. And Nico's there. And Nico's there. And Joyce is all right. And Barnaby explains the disc. And that Harold's confessed, but it was one of his last lucid moments. He won't be charged. Well, he won't be, have his day in court. And Barnaby says, I can't believe this is all over theater. I can't believe anybody would commit murder for sake of the theater. And Cully and... Dad! <laughs> and they laugh. And the credits roll. <laughs> this episode is, with the exception of uh, Esalen's death, is just not as notable and crazy and exciting as the previous two episodes. It's, it's a good episode, but the two deaths are kind of... I don't know. They're not very well connected. We don't have a whole lot of corpses to choose from, and we've got our best best corpse of the episode. It's got to be Agnes because we don't even see Epsilon after he's dead. He does have a fantabulous death, but we don't get to see him. So I have a couple of problems with the episode, too. Okay. The first one being, as we mentioned, if you're doing a performance in which there's a razor that slits somebody's throat, Use a plastic razor. Mm-hmm. It's inviting trouble. I know I can juggle knives now and practice because I put tape on them. <laughs> Nico can juggle scones. Yes. <laughs> I also think that this motive, again, is a little difficult because essentially it's saying Harold was on edge and he wanted to have money to get a new theater. I understand that. Yeah. And he thought this was his way back to stardom. And when that was put in jeopardy, he didn't get upset. He got a crowbar. And he must have been pretty coherent up to that point because Agnes was able to do business with him over a pretty long period of time for a pretty large number of pieces of art. So this is the moment, like... Again, like the first episode, oh, you caught us bonking outside. We're going to go on a murder spree. So are we to assume then that um, Agnes must have told Harold that she was done? That she wasn't going to do it anymore? One would assume that. And that's what made him snap? Yeah. Yeah. And again, as we mentioned also, there's a low body count in this episode. Yeah, it's a disappointing body count. The the, the one death is, is great, but... I would say Agnes's death was good, but like, eh, like... It's not as notable as the razor. Like, it could have... The razor death could have happened at minute 25, and then Kitty could have got knocked off, or Rosa could have got knocked off, or Tim or Avery, somebody in there. Like, imagine if Tim and, A- Tim and Rosa were found together dead, because they found the disc, and Tim said, oh, I know what this is, let's blackmail him. yeah. Like that, that would have, you know, been much more midsummer. You're trying to find ways to kill more people. I I am. (laughs) I am trying to find ways to kill. Which leads me back to another point of the episode is 
There's not a lot of likable people in this. No, it's, it's, it's hard to... I think Eslin's death had to be shocking because otherwise you'd be like, meh, somebody killed the asshole. So Avery, I like Avery. Makes good jokes. He's yeah. fun. Tim is He's okay, cheating except on for the his affair. partner. Yeah. Kitty and Rosa just hate each other. They're irredeemable. Eslin's irredeemable. And almost to the point of Doris is so mousy, she's dislikable. Yeah. Because she's clearly been in that position for a long time. Like, and she clearly had Ajax. She could have done the deed herself. Oh, she cooked all of his meals for him. Including the rhubarb cobbler, which... Had to be at least a week old. We had a 20-minute <laughs> conversation trying to figure out what day it was and what day the rhubarb cobbler was made, only to figure out that there was no way for us to figure this out. No. And that she must be serving him weak old cobbler. Because he maybe, says, what's for pudding? Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe. He got ergot poisoning <laughs> from, the from the weak old cobbler. Old cobbler. <laughs> no, he leaves before he eats it anyway. Oh, maybe that was why he was insane, but he left before he ate it. Because he so. was hungry. <laughs> so, maniacs, that is Death of a Hollow Man. If you have any comments or ideas that we didn't think of, or, or if you sequined jockstrap pictures of Paddington—that's true—or if you noticed any other kind of interesting little things like camshafts on rafters, uh, drop us a line, send us a voicemail. We would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, our next episode will be season one, episode three, which is "Faithful Unto Death," mm. which is a, a very—it's um, a low body count, but it's, it's a, a good low one. body count, but it's a good one. It's got uh, Roger Allum in it, yeah. one of our favorite actors. Yeah. So. And reminder that our Twitter feed is at Midsummer Maniacs. And uh, you can pick up this podcast at all the regular podcasting places. And uh, Give us a like. Give us a comment. Let us know what you think. A like, a comment, and rate and review us on any podcast application that you use. Bye, Maniacs. Bye, Maniacs. What's his name? The killer. Harold. Harold. Okay. Harold.